His mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had all been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, can you imagine? Oh, goodness me. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Remember that, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Where on earth do they get water in a hot, arid country from to fill these water jars? Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into the wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you... I've saved the best till last. Have you done a picture there? Yeah. You have saved the best till last. What Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory after his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mothers and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. This is the gospel of the Lord. Christ to you. Christ. So, my hour has not yet come. What is it about Jesus that makes him so, relig- um, so reluctant to march to something else's, sorry, to someone else's rhythm? You can imagine how Tony was pulled in so many different directions his family wanted him to go here the disciples wanted him to go there the crowds called upon his favor constantly and the religious leaders demanded that he gave them answers that they wanted it happens to all of us i find many times there's enough goodness in our hearts that most of us want to help everybody and everyone who calls upon us and quite often on some occasions we're made to feel a little bit guilty because we're not able to please all the people all the time. And I can really relate to this on the basis of what I do in terms of my particular ministry. In other words, there are times when I feel pulled in many and several directions at the same time. And I'll I'll be honest, I don't always know how to deal with it for the best. A friend of mine once said to me, uh, he had a hard decision to make and regardless of what he decided, It was going to disappoint somebody. I'm sure we've all heard that before. However, whatever you do, you're going to disappoint somebody. And it happens more often than you might think. Uh, There's an author called John Killinger, and he touches on this. He says, you have heard that a preacher lives in a fishbowl, but according to his own pastoral experience, that is hardly the full story. It's more like a piranha bowl, John Killinger says. People take a bite here, a bite there, and pretty soon all that's left is a stain in the water. Now that's a little bit extreme, to be quite honest. But it does happen, and of course, 
Nobody knew that better or experienced it more than Jesus did. And it started in Cana at the wedding when the wine ran out. Though John doesn't say this, but such a social mistake would have caused great embarrassment to the bridegroom who was the wedding host. Weddings are joyous occasions, but they were taken very seriously. And on the surface of things, it appears that Jesus accompanied his mother to the wedding simply just to have a good time. Weddings are and should be a good time. I love doing weddings. I always find there's a real joy when we're doing weddings. But in the days of Jesus, weddings were one of the most anticipated events in that particular culture. The parties or receptions would go on for days or weeks at a time. And if they ran out of wine, well, there's going to be a, a huge problem because people just stared and stared and stared. I've got to be honest, after, in, after a few hours, I, I've had enough. We, we, we've been invited to a fancy dress party. I hope they're not here. No. Oh, no. I hope they don't hear it online. I, I hate fancy dress parties. Honestly, there's just something about... I know you, Sally, you can like... You, you look at me, you like that. But you love to get dressed up and that. I, honestly, it's a bane of my life, fancy dress. Oh, please. So, go as a vicar. Oh, 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 I haven't heard that before. <laughs> Sorry. I digress. Yeah, parties. Yeah, honestly, two hours after a party, I've had enough. I want, I'm, I'm a form. Yeah, but not a fancy dress. Where did I get to... But you've got to give all credit to the stamina that these people had, haven't you? A week, you know, a few days, a week partying. It just seemed to me, though, an odd way for John to reveal the beginning of Jesus' ministry. A wedding is certainly not an ordinary thing to those that are hosting it. But as we're all aware, it's not a small thing to pay for, is a wedding. And why use a wedding to unveil Jesus' power? Why not a healing miracle? After all, Mark shows the beginning of Jesus' ministry with an exorcism. Now that's going to get people's attention. Why would John start with a small miracle that not many people are going to see, like turning water into wine? And I know it's not a small achievement, but if you're going to write Jesus' biography, I don't think you'd begin with a wedding reception. Bring somebody back from the dead, that's going to get their attention all the time. And if John's purpose is telling the story is just to inform us that Jesus was inclined to have a good time, like everybody else, well, I don't think he really does a good job of that. Or if John's desire is to let us know what happened, or who were the principal characters involved, well, again, John misses the target. He doesn't even tell us why Jesus and his mother attended, only that it seemed to have been Mary's invitation, and the rest of them just tagged along. Was the bride a cousin or was the groom Jesus' best friend? We just simply don't know because John doesn't tell us. We don't get the little details. And despite giving us some very interesting details, this story in John's Gospel is powerful, so much as from what John doesn't tell us as much as what John does tell us. For example, what has transpired in Jesus' life so far that gives his mother the idea he has an ability to do something about a wine shortage. Did she expect Jesus to perform a miracle? Or as John calls it, a sign? Or is she just suggested him that he runs down to local bargain booths and just make a purchase? 
Or is Mary hinting that perhaps this might be a good time for them to leave? Maybe to remove some of the pressure from the wedding host. Or that Jesus should take up an offering from among the wedding guests. And why is there so much water at hand? What do purification rites have to do with the wedding? Why does Jesus seem to take exception to his mother, his mother's subtle request that he ends up doing something about the situation anyway? At the wedding, very few people even knew how the miracle was done or who did it. And if you look at the story carefully, you find that not even the master of the banquet, who was something of a wedding coordinator, nor the servants who carried the water knew what had happened, why or when. It sounds like Jesus had a very small audience for this first miracle. It's true that John leaves us with more questions than he does answers. But then again, if he gives us all the answers, well, we're not going to have anything to preach about. So what is John's point? I thought you'd never ask that. Everything in this story, all the little details, the thing John tells us, as well as the things he doesn't say, and the interesting way in which John frames it, it all points to Jesus' glory. All points to Jesus' glory. It was the first miracle, the first sign that Jesus performed, and it doesn't really have anything to do with water or wine. Verse 11 says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus informs us that this whole thing is done in, sorry, John informs us that this whole thing is done in order to reveal Jesus' glory. But what does that mean? What's Jesus' glory? First of all, understand what a miracle or sign It doesn't have a life of its own. It points to something else, something greater, something more eternal or certainly longer lasting than itself. When Jesus fed the multitudes in the wilderness, it was an incredible event. Imagine what it must have felt like to have been there. The goosebumps on your neck, all these people being fed. But actually, when the next mealtime rolled out, you're still hungry. You're still hungry. No more goosebumps, just growling stomachs. When Jesus healed the crippled or the lepers, when he gave sight to the blind, it gave each of them fortunate receivers, it gave them a new life. And think of those Jesus brought back from the death to life, even Lazarus, when he'd been rotting in the grave for four days. What joy that must have brought to people to walk again, to see again, to breathe again. But eventually they all pass away, they all die. And the bodies decompose in the grave. And the obvious consequence of Jesus' miracles was all short-lived. The master of the banquet who comments on the quality of the wine understands what happens only on the surface level. One minute they've run out of wine, the next they've got enough wine for a couple more weeks. And it's the best stuff they've ever had. There's a deeper meaning here though. There has to be a deeper meaning. And very few who attended the wedding that day understood that meaning. The last thing Jesus is interested in is helping the bridegroom to save his face. Jesus certainly has more important things to do. So why does Jesus bother? Because every miracle, every sign pointed to something beyond itself. Something that was far greater than just the miracle itself. 
Each sign performed gives everybody a glimpse of how it must be in the kingdom of heaven. Where there's not a single limb that's crippled, not an eye that cannot see, not a soul that cannot breathe. The point of every miracle was to show Jesus in his glory. Not just to make life better for one who has happened to be in the right place at the right time to take advantage of his power. When it comes time for Jesus to show his glory, such power he will do in his time. Actually, he does it in his father's time. And when he finds himself in this awkward social situations at Cana's wedding, he informs his pushy mother that his hour has not yet come. It's too early to show his stuff, to reveal his power, at least to the many. He knows that when he does such a thing as a miracle or signs, things happen, eternal things, heavenly things, godly things. Jesus never takes his power for granted, and he doesn't want his mother or anybody else to do that either. There will be enough time for him to perform his signs so that every, everybody can see. But now is not the time. And then Jesus turns around and he does it anyway. He does it anyway. It's almost as if he let his mother have her way against his own judgment. As young people would say, what's up with that? Let's keep going. All that water is there because of the ritual of purification. The Jews had it right. Weddings were times of worship. I consider that one of most, uh, my most important tasks uh, when uh, I'm officiating a wedding. I always make a point that first and foremost, it's a service of worship. And some people, especially those who only attend church when they go to a wedding, tend to forget that. That's providing they even knew it in the first place. When the first century Jews worshipped, first they purified themselves. They prepared as they entered the synagogue or temple. The Muslims still do it, you know, they all wash before they go into the mosque. They prepare themselves, clean themselves. We do it in confession. We do it from our inside as opposed to external. But the first century Jews first purified themselves. They prepared as they entered the synagogue or temple. They dipped their fingers into the water and set aside just for purification right. And it didn't take much, it was more of a symbolic gesture than it was hygienic. And it only took about a cup of water to clean probably a hundred people. But John goes out of his way to let us know that there's a lot of water here. Six stone jars, all in two or three measures, a measure being about 10 gallon. If you do the math, six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons each, there could have been as much as 180 gallons of water, at minimum 120. That's a lot of water. Like I say, it's a dry part of the world. Water's not taken for granted. If one cup of water could purify 100 men, imagine how many 180 gallons would serve. What's John saying? What's John saying? There's enough water here to purify the whole world. And it's at Jesus' command. The point of the story is not that Jesus can take plain drinking water and make it 20% proof. It's those who once found access to God by means of ritual purification now find their way to God through Jesus. Jesus is indeed the way, the truth and the life. He hasn't had an opportunity to reveal this yet. After all, he's just getting started. His hour has not yet come. 
This sign is just the beginning. Every story about Jesus that is told in John's Gospel continues to reveal his glory, his purpose into the coming world. Jesus' hour will come when he will be revealed by who he truly is. But not now, not now. And for that reason, it's only his disciples, perhaps maybe three or four, who see what happens. But because they do see this, we're told in the scripture, they believed in him. Now, there are at least two clues that pull this idea together. The first is to do with the way that John opens his story. It says, the first line, it says, on the third day. On the third day in relation to what? It's not just offering a timeline or using terminology that points to something else. In this case, something else is, of course, the resurrection. Look it up in any New Testament Gospels and you'll find that all references to the third day point us to an empty tomb. The other clue is found in the reaction of the master of the banquet. He makes the remark to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first, but you have kept the wine, the good wine until now. The best is served for last. He's merely commenting on the quality of the wine. But John takes his remark and gives it a bit of a theological twist. God saves the best for last. And now after Abraham and Moses, after the law and the prophets, God gives us his very best. And the best is Jesus. He saves the best till last. But God's people don't take much to God's best. No one knew that more than Jesus. So he tells his mother that his hour has not yet come. What hour? Well, the hour of his glory when he's going to be lifted up to the cross. The story is as simple as it is. It appears to point to his death on the cross and the resurrection that follows. You've got to hand it to Mary. She's pretty cool about all this. When Jesus tells her his hour has not yet come, she turns to the servants and says, do it anyway. Do it anyway. She's content to let her son be in charge, to stand back and give him room to do his thing. And there's a message there. There's a message for all of us. Are we content to let Jesus do the thing in us? And and what is the thing that we want Jesus to do in us? After all, turning water into wine, even though it's pretty impressive, is also pretty trivial considering the more important demands that are going to face Jesus. He's got people to heal, hungry to fill, death to conquer. Think of the demands that Jesus has yet to face. He's just starting his ministry. Well, if we remember the parable that John Gillinger touches on, well, there's always somebody wanting yet another bite, and it has to be on their terms. Jesus doesn't respond to us based on our terms. He always does what his heavenly Father wants him to do. That's what Jesus' hour is. Jesus gives us his best. He gives us his glory. And I want to ask brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, Are you willing to receive that? Are you willing to receive Jesus totally into your heart? We come to worship on a Sunday morning, but what we're looking for, are we looking for self-esteem, peace of mind, answers to all our problems? You may find it, but that shouldn't be what you come to church for. If all you see is water turned into wine, but if you come to worship and honour God and follow Jesus, You see not only a sign, but
but what the sign points to, which is the way of life that leads to the cross. So the next time you're thirsty, find something cool that will satisfy your thirst. But if you're longing for something that's more eternal, you need to surrender yourself fully to Jesus. What Jesus will do is far more than just turn water into wine. What you receive from Jesus is going to last for an eternity. Without a doubt, he saves the best for last, doesn't he? Let's pray. Lord, may your hour come in us. When you come and ask us to follow you, our prayer is that you will find us responsive to your call. Because we want to see more than just water turned into wine. Lord Jesus, we want to see you in all your glory. That's what we come here for every Sunday. Not just to worship and have fellowship, but to see and worship you, to give you everything because you give everything back to us. So Lord Jesus, just continue to walk with every one of us as we walk in our daily lives that you're not just water that turns into wine, but you are an eternal God and you give every one of us the right to an eternity to spend with you and together. So be with us now, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.